you'll take your Bibles this morning, we're going to turn open to the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew chapter 17 this morning. It's been a while, so we took a break this summer, and now we're returning back to the Gospel of Matthew. And so Matthew chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 14 through 21 this morning. Matthew 17, verses 14 through 21. And why don't we pray one last time for the reading of the Word and the preaching of the Word as we turn to it this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are in need of Your voice this morning. We pray that You would speak to us through Your inerrant Word, that it would not return void, that it would accomplish its purposes in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds. And we pray that it would equip us for the work that is before us. We pray this in the strong name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 21. This is the holy and errant word of God. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, it has been a while, so let me remind you of where we're at in the Gospel of Matthew here, in Matthew chapter 17. You remember in Matthew 17 that we left off where Jesus had been up on a mountain and He had been there with his three inner core of disciples with Peter and John and James. And it was there on that mountaintop that there was quite an event where he is meeting with two of the great fathers of the faith of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. And not only is he meeting with them, but as he is meeting with them, you'll remember that he is transfigured. He is caught up in the glory that was his before His incarnation and the glory that is His was shining before these disciples as they were on the mountain. And then they were coming down the mountain, and that's where we are at in our text. We could say in a very real sense that on that mountain they were having a mountaintop experience. And now as they come down the mountain, as often happens after a spiritual mountaintop experience, they are entering into the depths once again. When they descend from the mountain, there's a crowd at the base of the mountain, and in that crowd is a man. 
And that man comes to the Lord Jesus and out of respect, he falls on his knees before Jesus. And then as a further sign of respect, he calls him Lord. And then he lays out his problem before the Lord Jesus. His son has been suffering from seizures, and these are severe seizures. These seizures will throw him upon the ground, and not just throw him upon the ground, but at times will throw him into fire and into water, no doubt seeking to destroy his life. And this is a father who is grieving, who truly loves his son and is crying out for mercy that his son might be saved. A father that has done a pretty good job of loving his son. You think of all of these times that he's been thrown into a fire and been thrown into water, and yet he's still living. And so he cries out to Jesus. He explains to Jesus that he has already taken his son to Jesus' disciples. Actually, it's very pointed how he says it there in verse 16. He says, your disciples. Your disciples could not heal him. And now he's asking Jesus to seemingly do what his disciples couldn't do. It's a pretty dour scene, if you will. The boy is helpless. The father is helpless. The disciples are helpless. And Jesus is frustrated. Dare we even say that Jesus is angry in the text? He says to them in verse 17, O faithless and twisted generation, that is faithless, unbelieving, twisted. That word literally has the idea of perverted, mangled, distorted. Oh, faithless generation, twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I wonder if that strikes you as odd, coming from Jesus. Man is seeking mercy for his son, and Jesus responds in frustration and with anger. It doesn't seem exactly well-placed. In our minds, expect there to be a little more compassion than this. It seems harsh, but it's actually very well-placed, and it's quite compassionate, and it's quite merciful. Jesus desires that the generation that is there, the generation that is with Him, that they would know life and that they would know it abundantly. He wants them to know love in all of its fullness. He wants them to experience peace and in every way. And when he looks out upon this crowd that is at the foot of the mount, he sees a generation that is missing it. And he sees disciples that have wandered from it. And it grieves him. He laments. He rebukes the demon and the boy is healed. Praise God. But the healing is not the focus of the text. The focus of the text is faith, or its counterpart, unbelief. Three points this morning. Let us make sure that we look to Jesus in faith. Second, let us make sure that we continually look to Jesus in faith. And third, let us make sure that we continually with expectation, look to Jesus in faith. 
The scene is meant to remind you of an Old Testament passage. It's meant to remind you of Moses coming down from the mount when he is receiving the Ten Commandments from God and he comes down from the mount after he has experienced a spiritual high and his face is shining with the glory of God. And as he comes down the mountain, there is a crowd down at the base of the mountain as he was having that spiritual high above, he finds that the crowd below has bottomed out. They have erupted in unbelief. Just as Moses lamented the unbelief as he saw this crowd, so Jesus laments the unbelief that he sees in this generation, in this crowd. We could say that it marks every generation, not just the generation Jesus is speaking to, but every generation or at least every generation after Adam. I reviewed this, I don't know, maybe a year and a half or two years ago, but it's incredibly helpful. I find it helpful when I'm thinking through the Bible, when I'm thinking through the world, and so I'll share it again with you. But it's what has been come, to, uh, come to be called the fourfold state of man. Thomas Boston, the old Scottish Puritan, made it famous. It dates back, though, to Augustine had similar thoughts. But the fourfold state of man, that there are four different states of man. There is man in creation, or man in the garden. There is then fallen man. Then there is redeemed, or saved man. And then there is glorified man. And as we think about those four states, there are two things that we want to think about man in each of those states. So, as we think about Adam and Eve created man in the garden, these are the two things we can say. Were they able to sin? And the answer is yes, they were able to sin. Were they able not to sin? And the answer is yes, they were able not to sin. They were able to sin, they were able not to sin. When Adam, though, in Genesis 3, chooses to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he falls. And all mankind falls with him. And so every single person, as the catechism says, descending from him by ordinary generation, that is everybody except the Lord Jesus, not ordinary generation, but everybody else is born into this world in a fallen state. And so as we take those two categories and we say, all mankind born into this world in a fallen state, able to sin? Absolutely. Able not to sin? No. Not able not to sin. Always sinning. This is what Jesus sees when He looks upon this crowd. It's a fallen generation. Able to sin and not able not to sin. There is that third, though, fold state of mankind, and that is saved man or redeemed man. When the Lord Jesus Christ shines His grace upon you, and He gives you the gift of faith, and you are regenerated, you're born again. And saved man or regenerated man, able to sin? Absolutely. Able not to sin? Absolutely. We are able to sin. I'm a living testimony. Able not to sin? As well. But what we long for is that fourth state. It's glorified man. When we are in the presence of our Lord bodily, soul and body together, in a glorified state, where we are before His face and I no longer am tainted with sin in any way, able to sin? No. 
not able to sin ever again. And then it breaks down in English, it works in Latin, but something like not able not, not to sin, something like that. You can't sin. All you can do is do good for all of eternity. Jesus looks at this crowd. He sees fallen man. As Thomas Manton, the old Puritan, said, he said it is a kind of reigning unbelief. And it is, as Jesus says here, it's twisted. It's perverted. This isn't what mankind was supposed to look like. He was supposed to dwell with God in intimacy and fellowship and union. And now that that soul is twisted and it's mangled and it's perverted. Think about Jesus when He heals that that lame man. and Lame from birth. I don't know. Was it because He had a crooked spine? I, I like to imagine that that was the case. And He had a crooked spine, and it was all tied up in knots, and that's why he was paralyzed, and he couldn't walk, and then Jesus heals him, and the spine straightens, and he walks home. You and I can't see it, but our our souls are, as we're born in this world, they're all mangled, and they're tied in knots, and they're corrupted. They're not straight. And it takes the grace of the Lord Jesus in our lives to to straighten them. And He gives us that gift of faith and we embrace Him. And then we're able to walk home. What Jesus sees here is that they still did not believe. So how is that possible? It's because they're fallen men and women and children. How's that possible? They, they, they saw him do miracles. They saw him feed the 5,000. They saw him heal a lame man. They saw him raise Lazarus from the grave. They not only saw him do miracles, they heard him preach. But seeing they didn't see, hearing they didn't hear. Because they're fallen. They can't do good. And as long as they didn't look to Jesus in faith, they would forever be twisted and perverted. Forever. That's the essential question for you and I in this room. Have you looked to Jesus in faith? Have you? You. Have you looked to Jesus in faith? Because otherwise you're forever perverted and twisted in your soul. Second, Let us make sure that we continue to look to Jesus in faith. Moses descends that mountain. He will find that the Israelites are down there worshiping God at the foot of the mountain. And yet he is irate. Why? Because they've chosen to take all of their gold, and as Aaron says, they threw it into the fire and out popped the golden calf. And they were bowing down and they were worshiping God by bowing down to this golden calf. Their intention was to worship God in the moment, but they weren't worshiping God. They were doing what they thought would work. And Jesus finds the same thing when He comes down from the mountain. Not only is this generation marked by a lack of faith, but He sees that the disciples themselves have wavered in the faith. 
And we see that in the text by what occurs. The disciples come to Jesus privately. Maybe there's a form of embarrassment there. But they want to know why they can't cast out this demon. Why are they asking that question? Because they've been able to cast out demons before. Back in Matthew 10, Jesus will send out the disciples. And when He sends them out, He says this to them. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And they did. They found great success as they went out. They felt like when they were doing ministry that the kingdom of darkness was in full retreat. But now there is this boy that is filled with a demon that is causing him to have seizures, throwing him into fire and water, and they can't cast him out. And they want to know why. Why, Jesus? Why couldn't we do this? And his answer is very simple. Because of your little faith. It's the only time that that word, it's one word in the Greek, that that word is used in all of the New Testament. Little faith. What does it mean? What does Jesus mean by that? Well, we know what it can't mean. It can't mean that the disciples had no faith. They had faith. They all had abandoned everything that they knew to follow after Him. They had picked up their cross and they had followed Him. Not only that, but in Matthew chapter 16, just the chapter right before this one, Peter makes his grand confession at Caesarea Philippi. He says, we know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's speaking for all of the disciples. It isn't that they don't have any faith. They aren't marked by that reigning unbelief that we see in fallen man or that we see in the rest of this generation that's at the foot of the mount here. They are marked by what I would call practical unbelief. It's not that they don't believe in Jesus, but they've stopped looking to Jesus. They were attempting to cast out this demon simply by relying upon their own efforts. In the Gospel of Mark, in the parallel account of this, Jesus will say to them, He says, this kind only comes out by prayer. You see, they thought, we've done this before. We got it together. We're good at this. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. This only comes out by prayer. One of the great roles I feel like I have as a pastor and my calling as a pastor is to to invest in young men and raise up a next generation of pastors. I take that very seriously. It's one of the reasons I love this church is you take that seriously. Uh, You understand the multiplication effect it can have if we raise up a man of character that loves God, loves His people, and loves His Word, and ties those three things together into a tapestry of pouring out His life in ministry. And so we invest in these young men. I found over the years, as I've grown a little more experienced in this, and having discipled dozens of these men, is that there are some that worry me more than others. And I find myself praying for them more and investing more in them. And it's not who you would think. It's not the ones 
that are the least talented and the least gifted and have the least amount of abilities. That's the ones that are the most talented and the most gifted and have the most abilities. They're the ones that concern me. Because it is so easy to begin to fall into the trap of believing that ministry is our doing. Such men can easily be tempted to rely upon the gifts rather than the gift giver. It's a constant temptation in the Christian faith to have a kind of practical unbelief and stop continuing to look to Christ in faith as we go forward in ministry for the sake of Christ and for His kingdom. That's a temptation for you. Some of you have the ability to talk your way out of a brown paper bag, as they say. Some of you have great minds and can reason things out with the best of them. Some of you are creative and seem to easily find solutions. Some of you are charismatic and people will follow you as leaders. All you have to say is jump and they want to know how high. And we meet success and we begin to rely upon those gifts, those abilities, ourselves. There's another slight variation of this temptation when we don't rely upon the gifts rather than the gift giver, but we fall in love with the ministry over the one who gave us the ministry. It can be addictive to cast out demons. I don't know, I'm assuming, but I can assume that based upon experience in other realms of ministry. We can fall in love with the doing. And all of a sudden, we miss looking to Christ in faith. I remember not too long ago, being in Scotland and walking in Edinburgh, and it's amazing. You, you can only go literally, literally. This is not an exaggeration. Every two blocks. And there is some Presbyterian church on the corner. And not just some Presbyterian church. They are huge stone structures with steeples that go into the sky every two blocks. And most of them are now community centers or non-for-profits or vacant. Have you noticed how hard it is for a church to remain orthodox and to keep preaching the gospel a hundred years later. You don't have to go to Edinburgh. You can just go to major cities in this country. You think about New York or Chicago or Detroit or Cleveland or Boston, and you think, how many first churches, no matter the denomination, how many first churches still hold on to the faith, are still orthodox, are still preaching the gospel? What happened? How did churches get there? It's not as if all their members all of a sudden woke up someday and had the thought, you know what, we no longer believe this. It's not as if the whole congregation all of a sudden decided someday we're no longer going to worship. It's not as if they all changed their confession that they held to all of a sudden. What happens is, is they simply over time began doing without looking to Christ. 
The temptation's subtle. Christ has called us to sound theology. We love theology, but stop looking to Christ. He's called us to teaching and apologetics, and we love teaching and love apologetics, but we stop looking to Christ. He's called us to being a faithful mother. We love mothering, but we stop looking to Christ. He's called us to love the poor, and we love the poor, but we stop looking to Christ. We love justice, but stop looking to Christ. No, it must be the other way around. We love Christ, and so we love theology. We love Christ, and so we love justice. We love Christ, and so we love the poor. It's very easy to get off what feels like just one degree, when in reality it's 180 degrees different. The disciples had stopped looking to Christ in faith as they were seeking to labor for Christ. And they're no longer doing the work of Christ. If it's going to be lasting, it must be God's work. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Moses strikes the rock three times. He's going to do it. Abram goes into Hagar. He's going to bring forth a promise. He's going to do it. It's not just the doing that our God concerns himself with, but the how and the why. Do we do it in faith for his glory? Do we do it in faith for his glory? There's that slogan I remember hearing as a new Christian back in the 90s. I think Larry Burkett probably first said it. But he said, show me your checkbook and I'll tell you what you value. And we could say, show me a person's prayer life and I'll tell you how much they continue to look to Christ. They weren't praying. Just their own effort. But you consider the scene, Right? The disciples are trying to do what is right. Lord, what relief this would give to this young man if we had just been able to cast out this demon. And what glory it would have given to God if we could have cast out this demon. We could have relieved this young man. Yes. But it would have burdened the disciples. They would have thought they had power. And that's not a burden you and I can bear. And you see what Jesus does here with them. He's taking them all the way back to the beginning. And he's saying, as you were saved in grace, so you continue in grace. It's about the gospel. As you look to me in faith, and it was the salvation of your souls. So as you go forward in ministry, you have to look to me in faith. It's my grace in you. It's my grace that does this work. He's bringing them back to the gospel. I'm the vine. You are the branches. You can do nothing apart from me. If you accomplish anything, it must be by my grace. 
So look to me in faith. Kingdom work is always accomplished by His grace. I remind you of that, that there are some in the church who appear to be doing much, but are actually doing very little in the eternal economy of God. And there are some who, on the surface, appear to be doing very little and yet are doing much in the eternal economy of God. And it will be shown in heaven. Without faith, our work is dead work, but by faith, it's an eternal work that gives glory to God. And so we want to continue to look to Him in faith as we labor for Him. Finally, let us make sure that we expectantly continue to look to Him in faith. You think about that previous point, I think we can begin to to hear that, and if you have an ounce of grace in you, then you begin to struggle and you say, but uh, I don't do everything in faith, or at least not perfect faith. My faith is tainted. I have faith, but I often am operating in unbelief. It's mixed up with all my faith, and there is great encouragement in this text for us in that regard. It is what I would call not that kind of reigning unbelief, not practical unbelief, but what we might call doubting unbelief. And I want to encourage us along those lines this morning. But first, I want you to see the the great encouragement in this text that Jesus even gives before that, that just a little faith in Him, a little looking to Him, He says, can lead to the moving of mountains. Now, why is that? It's because of His great grace. Little faith can do great things because of His great grace. Jesus often will use figures of speech. He compares here faith needed to a mustard seed. He could have described, I think, faith as faith like a a lion or faith like an avalanche, and yet He chose like a mustard seed. The clear reason is to contrast between what we see externally and, and what power lies within. The mustard seed is small, But in reality, it shows itself to be strong, all-powerful, beyond all expectations. You and I would expect a lion to be powerful. We would expect an avalanche to be strong. But a mustard seed? Not at all. And so it's the same with faith. We think, ah, faith is an insignificant thing. It's a small thing. But the smallest amount of even... The weakest of faith, when looking to Christ expectantly, can cause great things. It was Jesse Ventura. He was a mountain of a man. For those of you that didn't grow up in the 80s, uh, he was in the height of what was one of the greatest sports on the face of the earth at the time, wrestling, pro wrestling. And he was up there with Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant and the Ultimate Warrior and Ric Flair and the British Bulldogs and uh, Coco Beware and, oh man, great, great wrestlers. Jesse Ventura was one of these and 
He was Donald Trump before Donald Trump. You'll remember he then ran for office and became the governor of Minnesota. And it was while running for office that he said, organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. It's trivial. It's just a, a sentiment. It's a, it's a feeling. It's vapid. But we know differently. It's by faith that saints before us, as the writer of Hebrews says, have conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, and when suffering was called upon, they could endure. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. All endured. All achieved all secured by the power of faith. They looked expectantly to Christ. Let the world disregard our faith. It can move mountains. There's nothing too difficult for our God. What does it look like to expectantly look to Him in faith? I think Mark's account gives us the answer. In Mark's account, the father of the boy cries out to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, all things are possible for one who believes. And then what I think is one of the greatest responses and cries and prayers in all of the Scriptures. That father of the boy cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. But my belief isn't quite where I want it to be. I have faith. But this is not an unsullied faith. That's not a perfect faith. And none of us will have a perfect faith until we reach that fourth state of man. When we are in glory before His face and our faith becomes sight. Until then, it will always be mixed faith. And He cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. And Christ delights in answering the prayers of His people like that. John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Our Father in heaven is called the Father of mercies in 2 Corinthians 1. We're told in Romans 10, 12, the Lord bestows the riches, His riches on all who call on Him. He is more gracious than we are desirous. 
He is more ready to give than we are to ask. He said, but I, I don't know how to pray expectantly. I don't know how to look to him in faith expectantly. Well, to learn to pray, you pray. It's that simple. That's how you learn to pray. You just pray. And you need to know it's not the eloquence of our words that makes prayer acceptable to God. It's not the stringing together of coherent thoughts. It's not the emotion we exercise or the tears that we shed. Our prayers have life as they are prayed in faith. And as one theologian said, faith sets prayer at work and prayer sets the almighty power of that God at work and He has dominion over all the world and over all the events and over all the affairs of the world. Faith is the gateway to the power of God. And it's not the power of our faith, but the power of our God that moves mountains. And so we pray expectantly. We pray seeking His will. And we know if the mountain isn't moved, then it was for our good and for His glory. And when the mountain is moved, we give Him thanksgiving. If our faith is weak, we don't stop praying. We just pray all the more. And we look to Him all the more expectantly. Let's make sure that we look to Jesus in faith, that we continually look to Jesus in faith, and that we expectantly continually look to Jesus in faith until our faith becomes sight. And then our faith shall be perfect. And that will be a glorious day. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise this morning that you are a God of all power and a God of all might, a God who sheds grace and showers grace upon a people that were forsaken and destitute and fallen. And we're thankful that it is that same grace that saves us, that we now live by and continually seek to labor in for your glory. We pray that where there is unbelief mixed up with our faith, that you would grow our faith, that you would mature it, help us in our unbelief. And when we set out to labor for your glory in this world, we pray, Father, that you would give us the eyes of faith, that we might bathe all things in prayer, looking expectantly for you to work. Because we desire above all else to give you glory in this world. And would you bring us home? May we find that when we are home that there are many treasures stored in heaven for us. And that you say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Give us the eyes of faith and the feet of faith and the hands of faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.